0: Almighty God, illuminate our hearts and minds to hear your word, to be in the presence of your truth. We pray, make your servant worthy for the sake of your message. Amen. Believe it or not, the B90 readers are either starting the New Testament right about now or really close. And it's been a long journey through the Old Testament, and some of you are probably just really relieved to have put the Old Testament behind you and, and moved into the New Testament. And many of you who, for whatever reason, are not able to participate in this, this uh, emphasis, you know, you're probably glad the preaching is circling around to something a little easier to digest too. And yet, we're gonna spend one more day talking about the Old Testament because these last books of the Old Testament contain some pretty important things for us to reflect upon. And next Sunday, we'll talk about Jesus. But for now, consider that the last books of the Old Testament kind of culminate with the book of Daniel, which is the last of the major prophets, the great uh, extensive sort of influence that they had as, as official uh, Prophets and the formal nature of their prophecy. Uh, many of you have probably enjoyed reading again familiar stories like the the three who were thrown into the fiery furnace, only to find that there was a fourth in there with them. I wonder who that could be. And uh, you probably have pretty well grasped that this is the end of the old covenant era, and. There's a part that uh, Daniel presents us with that we have to consider, but I'm not going to do an extensive study of it today. Uh, I can tell you from recent experience in the last year that it took me, what, three weeks, I think, at an hour each, so about three hours, to unpack the prophecies contained in the latter part of the book of Daniel. Those recordings are available on YouTube and the printed uh, sermon or preaching, teaching notes. I'll get it eventually. Those, Those notes that accompany that study are also available. And if you go to the Knowing God with Heart and Mind Facebook group, you can download all of that. It's there. And if you want, you can get paper copies here at the church. But we did talk extensively about the prophecy that Gabriel gave to Daniel in the latter part of the book of Daniel today 's biggest takeaway from that prophecy is, is that Gabriel told Daniel that the people would be restored because God promised to restore them to Jerusalem, that the temple would be restored because God promised, but what God did not say, and what was was overtly omitted was that the temple would continue, and that the old covenant relationship with the people would continue that part is not there so basically the the prophecy from Gabriel to Daniel in response to his pleading prayer to God on behalf of his people was for your sake I'm going to answer the prayer Daniel it's amazing and keep that in mind by the way if one devoted lover of the Lord will earnestly pray for deliverance God might deliver an entire people on behalf of that one person. And Daniel was such a person. I have to note too that there was only, he's the only character you read about in the Old Testament that doesn't have anything bad said about him. Think about it. All the other major players in the Old Testament, they have this dark side that you get to hear about. But Daniel, the Bible doesn't say anything bad about him. God really loved Daniel. And as he fervently prayed for his people, there's this implication in the passage where Gabriel, and, and not just any angel, but Gabriel, one of the big shots up there, you know, he's dispatched even before Daniel gets to the end of his prayer. That's how interested God is in responding to Daniel. Isn't that amazing? But then this is what Gabriel tells him. and my, this, is, this is my summary. He says, For your sake, I'm going to bring them back to Jerusalem. I'm going to even let them restore the temple. And things are going to feel good again. But understand, Daniel, that the old covenant has passed. A new covenant is coming. And with that new covenant will come the end of temple worship, even the end of the temple. And at that time, the people of the old covenant who still remain will suffer terribly. And it came to pass in 70 AD. And historically, it's one of the ugliest times in human history, what happened to the people of Jerusalem. And do your Wikipedia this afternoon or something if you want to know. But trust me, it was everything that was prophesied. And Jesus even refers to the prophecy given to Daniel when he's talking privately with the disciples on the Mount of Olives As they admired the temple created by Herod, and he says, mark my words, as Daniel said, this will be wiped out, but it will be replaced with a new covenant that will be built in three days. And so we'll get there, and we'll talk about that again at that time. But rest assured that everything that was prophesied to Daniel from Gabriel came to pass even the announcement of the arrival date of the new covenant bearer. Yes, if you do the math and it's really fascinating, this is where you probably wanna get into my study notes and things. You can even figure out that Daniel was given the exact date when Christ would be born. And so it's a really great book to study, but for our purposes today, we're gonna move past that. It's an amazing, amazing book especially at that part. Then we get into who the people who are called the minor prophets. And, and as I said last week, the minor prophets' primary message was about repentance and about um, societal sin. Their primary message was about how you can't keep oppressing the poor, you can't keep oppressing the widow and the orphan. And and there's a price to pay and and you can say, look at us, we're awesome, everything is great, God is blessing us, what a wonderful country we are. They're living in in the status of a superpower not unlike our own and yet there's this dark underbelly that they deny and the minor prophets are there reminding them God doesn't miss a tick. Everything is being noticed by God. And what God notices isn't so much the behaviors that result from the sin, but the sin itself, which is pride and vanity. And that results in oppression. So that was the message that that we talked about last week. And then we hear in some of these minor prophets glimpses of what will come under the new covenant. And so. Maybe you noticed as you were reading through these minor prophets that there are little phrases that come across and you go, wait a minute, that sounds familiar because it appears in the New Testament and you remember that. And when you're reading your New Testament, one of the things you'll notice, especially in the New Testament, is how often the people who formatted the Bible, the ones who, who you know put it into print, they will create these sort of indented paragraphs in there. What they're saying is, is that at this point, the author or the, the scribe is quoting something. And, and so when you look at the text of your Bible, there are indications that we're familiar with because you know we took grade school English class or whatever, that, that this is actually a quote. And there's your hint. And now that you've read the uh, entire Old Testament, you can say, oh, hi, I get it. Occasionally, they quote a source that you haven't read, but most of the time now, you're beginning to make the connection. And if there's no other reason for doing this Bible in 90 days, I hope you've begun to see how much of a difference that makes. Well, then that leads me to one prophet whose message was entirely different, and that's Jonah. Now, Jonah's message wasn't like any of the other prophets. And most of us are familiar with Jonah. I mean, there are people out there who have never read the Bible and never gone to church who seem to know who Jonah is. Now, if you're like me, you've probably read the headline in the last couple of weeks. Did you hear about the guy on June 4th who was nearly swallowed by a blue whale off the coast of Cape Cod? Apparently this is legit. Now, you know, they're fact checking it and everything, but but, uh, this New England lobster diver claimed that he was thumped by something that felt like being hit by a bus, and then it went dark. And a couple of minutes later, this blue whale that grabbed him and and held him in his mouth, surfaced and flung his head and spit him out. And all the boats on the surface saw him flying out of this blue whale wake, basically. And so apparently the blue whale saw the bubbles from his dive gear and thought it was a school of of plankton or something. So you can imagine then that all of these people who know nothing about the Bible were saying, it's like Jonah and the whale. So everybody seems to know that story. Well, fact time. Scripture tells us that Jonah was swallowed by some sort of sea creature, but he was swallowed. You know, Uh, the whale on the other hand that got this, this, Uh, Michael Packard, um, you know, it realized it made a mistake, and it didn't try to swallow, which is probably good for both of them. And uh, on the other hand, the Bible says to us that Jonah was, in fact, entombed in a living tomb, a sepulcher, you know. And while he was there, he prayed this prayer, and I'd like to look at that. The book of Jonah, chapter 2, in its entirety is Jonah's prayer while he is encased, enclosed, entombed in a living creature. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All you waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and deeps surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And so just like that guy, Michael Packard, this thing coughs him up like a hairball onto the beach. And he, wouldn't you know, is right where he didn't want to be. Right outside Nineveh. Now, There's several things to say about this particular story, and the first thing I just want to note is, is, he's definitely in a bad place experiencing something pretty horrible, and no doubt a little delirious, but guess what? You probably can imagine Christ himself during the three days of entombment saying something along these lines, and without getting into stuff that we'll cover extensively in a few weeks, the thing that I want you to notice is is that at the moment when Jesus surrenders himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is now separated from God in a way that he has never known. The Son is separated from the God, from, from the God the Father, in a way that he has never had any comprehension of. And so for him, it is the most horrible, excruciating suffering that he can imagine. And they haven't even gotten into the physical stuff. And so when you read or reread these words in Jonah's prayer, see if you can't hear our Lord speaking in the same way. And then as we move into the Old, uh, to the New Testament and you get into the epistles, those letters that were written by the various church leaders, don't don't be surprised when you hear references to Jesus that take you back to this prayer of Jonah. Now, let's talk about Jonah. This is, this is really almost amusing. It's sort of pathetic, too. So most people know that Jonah was swallowed by a whale or a fish or something, and most people, you know, I don't know about you, but I grew up with cartoons and things, you know, most people picture him in there, you know, with his tent pitched inside the whale and his little campfire and everything, you know, sounds a lot worse than that to me. But, but anyway, you know, this is the image we have of Jonah, but let's flesh this man out a little bit because, because one of the things that really gets my attention is Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Now, keep in mind that Nineveh is one of their fiercest enemies. Nineveh is like a city state. Um, Nineveh historically was was sort of like the Dallas-Fort Worth area. You know, you just you just move from one part to the other and never really know whether you've left the city or not. You know, it's it's just big. And and so it's a city but it's not. It's bigger than that. It's way bigger. It's it's a huge sort of metropolitan mini kingdom. And Nineveh is a powerful enemy and the people of Israel fear them and hate them and Jonah is charged by God to go preach good news to them and to tell them that if they'll repent, God will forgive them and spare them from calamity that is destined to come their way. And Jonah says, I don't want to do that. Now, before the whale thing, the first thought you have is, as well i don 't blame him, you know who wants to go to your enemy 's gates and start preaching to him? they 're liable to shoot me before I open my mouth. I mean that 's kind of the reasoning that I would use if I was trying to just deny this calling, but the, the, the telling thing, the, the truth that 's really coming out, occurs after the deed is done. After he's cast out of the whale or the fish or whatever it was, after he preaches this good news to the people, they do repent. Starting with the king and all the way down, they repent. And God says, for this reason, I'm going to relent. I'm not going to punish them. And then Jonah goes away sulking and mad. He's mad. And, and God comes to him, and just think about this conversation. It's Father's Day. Imagine a dad talking to a lad, and the lad says, I'm really mad at you right now. And the dad says, why? And the lad says, you forgave my enemy. I told you that would happen. That's why I didn't want to go tell him you'd forgive him, because if, you, if I tell him that you would forgive him, then they would repent and they'd be forgiven. And I don't want that. I want you to come down on them with a big stick. See, Jonah was mad because he knew that if he preached the gospel of God's grace to his people's enemy, that they might accept that grace and then receive it. And he didn't want that. Think about that for a minute. Think about that. We like the idea of God saving people like us. But what happens if God can save people we consider our enemies too? What happens if God desires to save people we don't like or we don't think we would ever associate with? Then what do you do? I, I love the line in, the, God says this a couple of times to Jonah. He says, do you do well to be angry? I mean, this is God's version of Dr. Phil's line, how's that working out for you? Right? Isn't that basically what God is saying? So how's this working out? You being angry because I decided to save people that you don't like. And, and that, that puts it all in perspective, doesn't it? See, at that moment when God is talking with Jonah, God, who is outside of space and time, who is looking at things from a perspective we don't really have any sensibility to comprehend, that God is looking at Jonah and talking to Jonah, and he's saying, don't you get it, Jonah? I see a day when I will send a redeemer, even my own son, and anybody who accepts that redeemer receives my grace. He foresees a day when his own son will go into the country of their uh, despised Samaritan neighbors and offer offer them salvation. He, He sees a day when that same son of his will talk to the Roman oppressors and invite them to receive God's grace. He sees a day when his principal rival, spiritually speaking, will be converted. And so this man who was a Jew among the Jews as a great Pharisee will then turn and be a Christian. And he sees that very guy repenting of his sin against God and the people of God and preaching the good news to people that are despised because they're not born and bred Jewish. God sees a day of judgment when everybody who stands before his throne of grace will receive mercy in the name of the Son. And Jonah is ticked off because he didn't want that to happen. He didn't want that to happen. So what makes us so angry with God for showing grace and mercy and blessing to people we would rather not see blessed. What does that all have to do with the truth and the discipline of God? I think when it comes right down to it, we are like Jonah because we're afraid. We're afraid that we're going to have to do something we can't figure out how to do. How do you make peace with the enemy who is repentant? You know, it happened with Paul, right? The Apostle Paul is, is well, you know, that's a story coming in the, in the future readings. But the Apostle Paul is considered the enemy of the Christians, and yet he, has his conversion experience, and then he goes to the very Christians he persecuted, and they have to kind of figure out what they're going to do with him. Well... Praise be to God, they worked it out. But Jonah had nothing. Do you begin to realize why God was so hard on Jonah? Because he knew what the heart of the matter was. It wasn't a matter of Jonah's disobedience, it was a matter of Jonah's heart. You know, I, I was talking with somebody this week about, you know, repentance and, and how how what kind of you know, what is repentance? And and the thing is, is most of us have regrets about the decisions we've made that had bad outcomes. Most of us have shame about things we've done that we're not proud of. You know, most of us have these kinds of things. And so in a sense, we're repentant because we wish we'd have done better or we would like to do better in the future. And all of that's good. But but if God is going to to judge us based on, on a lifetime of, of behaviors and outcomes, then it gets complicated and and. In my personal opinion, this is why the Old Covenant failed because that's exactly what the people who interpreted it did. They they tried to micromanage the spirit of God's law, the heart of God's law. And when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see Jesus contending with that. He'll say, the problem is, is you guys decided to break it up into little pieces and then micromanage you know, integrity and and justice and and righteousness, you know, and, and God doesn't care about all of those little things as much as God cares about the condition of your heart. So let's get back to Jonah. What is it that God is judging Jonah for? Because of his attitude towards the Ninevites. Because of his attitude towards the people that he would actually say to God, I don't want them to get saved. I don't like them. I want all of your good things for me and my people, but I don't want you to give them to those people. And I know what kind of God you are. And I know that if I tell them that it's there for them, then you'll give it to them too. Well, now we're beginning to understand what Jonah's real problem is. And that is the part that requires repentance. That is the part of our own lives that the Lord wants to deal with. It's not the outcomes, it's the attitudes that fuel them. It's your attitude about yourself. It's your attitude about others. It's your attitude about God. This is what God is most keenly interested in. And in a way, through Christ, he has taken away all of the the superficial things that we construct around the heart of the law. And he said, look, all it really matters is that you recognize that in and of yourself, you're not enough to receive what I have for you. And it sounds unfair at a certain point. It sounds, but, but what it does is it takes all the pretense out of us. That the only way you can really expect to be in God's presence when you die and even before you die to experience the Holy Spirit for all eternity. The only way you can really honestly expect that from God is if you empty yourself of the pride and the self-serving attitudes. It's the, it's, repentance is a complete surrender of self. This is what, what we hear in the, old, in the New Testament when we talk about taking up your cross. And so like Jonah we have to be forced into submission until you are completely can you imagine you know here's what I do picture for Jonah I don't picture you know this roomy giant whale you know like like the cartoons what I picture is a guy who is completely and utterly helpless he's he's completely confined I mean if you're claustrophobic this is your worst nightmare Right? That's what he's experiencing. His head wrapped in weeds, you know? He is experiencing the worst nightmare of the claustrophobic person. Ironically, it's not unlike the womb, you know? It's that confining, right? And he's there experiencing a death to himself that will result in a birth into a new life. And that is exactly what we're expected to do. God is contending with Jonah's attitude and the only way to get past it is to die to self and then be born again. And it's right there in the Old Testament being proclaimed to us in this mysterious story that makes all kinds of sense because we're people of the new covenant. And it's still the same today. You may claim the gift that God gives you regardless of whether... Other people think you deserve it. But to really get that gift and to live into that gift, you have to die to yourself. And here's what I recommend, and this is where I'll wrap this up. God will forgive you for your misdeeds. I I tell you, I'm gonna tell you a little truth. I was sitting down there right, as Kim was playing, and, and, and I don't know why, but this this thought popped into my head, this this memory of something that I was ashamed of popped into my head, and I thought, well, maybe Satan's got something to do with, with that, you know, because maybe I'm about to tell you something that Satan would rather you didn't hear. I, I don't know, but I remembered something that I had long since repented of and put behind me and made peace with it as best I could, but I still remember it, and I remember thinking all of this while Kim was playing, I was thinking, Lord, why can't we just forget this stuff? You know, why, why is it that we, we can reconcile somehow, but we can't forget? And I don't know the answer to that, but I will tell you this. It's forgiven. It's not forgiven because I put that particular thing in God's hands. It's because I put my life in God's hands, my eternal life. It's, it's not our list of deeds and misdeeds that God is scoring, it's our attitude. It's our attitude towards God, and, the, and so if you ask me how you die to yourself and what do you do to kind of move in the direction of personal holiness or sanctification, the only answer I can give you is to start focusing more on God than yourself. Don't, don't try to figure out how to be selfless toward other people because that'll just turn into a form of self-worship if you're not careful. Don't try to be generous with other people as a way of showing God how repented you are because that'll backfire on you. Focus on God. If, if you have really repented of your sin nature and you really asked God to redeem you in the name of Jesus, not because you deserve it, but because he wants you to be redeemed, if you've done all of that, then your repentance will take the form of devotion to the one who saves you. So start there. Focus on Christ. Think every day about whether the actions you're planning for the day, the attitudes that you're entertaining all day long. Ask yourself, you know, at least every 30 minutes or so, how is this honoring God? How is this Repaying Christ in gratitude for a gift I can't give proper compensation for. You know, how how am I living for Christ and not for self? I mean, if you would just do that, you could lose that Jonah attitude over time. So as a practical matter, I would just invite you today to consider your attitude Toward God, that you would not trivialize God or belittle God in the way that Jonah did by saying, God, you're just a chump. You'll give anybody the gift. So I'm not telling them. <laughs> what does that say about his attitude towards God? What is he, a candy machine? That's, that's what God is dealing with Jonah on. And just to show him that it's bigger than that, He does something bizarre and utterly unimaginable. (laughs) And the next thing you know, he's in a fish's belly for three days. Aren't you glad God's not gonna do that to you? But don't be surprised if you put yourself in the position of Jonah, if God doesn't put you in some sort of uncomfortable place until you repent, repent for your attitude. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts for your name's sake, we pray, so that you'll be glorified in the way that we live. And above all, Lord, help us to make everything we do a service to you, an act of thanksgiving. Amen. Amen.